what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. This is your weekly wildfire update. Thanks, for everybody, for tuning in. As the week has gone by, we're getting some more information out of the fires that took place on the island of Maui down in Hawaii. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this today uh, before we move into some other things that uh, we need to talk about as well. But I have some thoughts on this. There's new details that have come in and uh, just some of the things that are going around in the public discourse uh, surrounding these fires. After we talk about Hawaii, we'll get into that full operational update um, some information about the firefighter pay raises and some senators out of Montana that are really starting to push that now. But with how devastating this fire in Hawaii is, we're going to talk about it. There's a ton of ridiculous, uh, honestly embarrassing conspiracies going around about it all. And there's people trying to take advantage of it. There's lawyers flying in. And just, you know, what I'm seeing from the viewpoint of someone who's been in wildland fire for a very long time surrounding these events and and actually how it went down. As of this morning, there have been 93 fatalities confirmed in the community of Lahaina, Maui, which makes this the deadliest wildfire in American history, at least in the last 100 years. Before that, it was the Camp Fire in 2018 in California. And then all the way back in 1918, there was a fire called the Cloquet Fire. There was many books written about this wildfire, and that devastated the local communities that that ran through as well. Those numbers are likely to rise. They are still trying to get through community that is basically 100% destroyed. There's 1,700 structures that have been destroyed through this fire. And at this point, obviously, it's going to get a lot of attention. The first thing I'm going to talk about is all of these individuals. It's internet trolls and just idiots and probably bots and uneducated people, people who want to stir the pot and cause contention and confusion when it comes to the cause of this. And this is folks who, within like an hour of this fire happening, were saying that there are direct energy weapons that are shooting down from outer space and starting these fires. And they say they have all sorts of evidence, and my inbox the last week has been insane, and uh, I'm, I'm struggling even to get through the amount of messages and emails that I've received. But inside of that are people sending me pictures of laser beams coming down from space. And some of them are clearly Photoshopped. Some of them are clearly AI created. And some leave me with like a little bit of a head scratch, but it's it's like this, everything these people are sending me are obviously fabricated images. Now, let's just kind of dive into the weeds for a little bit. The people who are making these claims are saying, well, look, all of the structures are destroyed, but there's trees next to the structures that are still alive. And then they send you a picture and the trees aren't still alive. They're they're fried. It's a pine tree or some sort of tree, right? Because they send you examples from like California and other places and now in Hawaii. These trees are burned. Yes, they are still standing. Yes, they still have branches on them. But all of the vegetation that was on the branches is gone. 
And so it's a horrible, horrible, horrible example of trying to convince people that this is what's going on. Then they'll show you an image of burned out cars, but then one car isn't totally burned out. And they're like, look, this was targeted. It's like, no, when a fire pushes through an area, the wind can shift and fire moves and it can bend around a vehicle for long enough to where the main heat passes, where now you have one car that's not totally burned up and then down the block, all the other cars are burned up. It doesn't mean that space lasers were were direct attacking every car, but then they just missed one, you know? So I just find that crazy and ridiculous. But you have to say to yourself, okay, well, do these direct energy weapons even exist? And the answer is kind of yes. Um, they've kind of been admitted to by some military agencies, and saying that they do have laser technology that can shoot down satellites, but there is no admission from any governments around the world saying that we have satellites equipped with lasers that can then shoot down towards Earth. And you have to start looking at, you know, what is the most obvious cause of these fires? There's a lot of people going around saying, hey, these things were caused by arsonists, and obviously it must be arson and so on and so forth, and they provide you examples of arson that has taken place in Hawaii. Now, for longtime listeners, you'll know that I have covered wildfire arson for a very long time. I know a lot about it because I've I've basically read every article that's out there on meth heads, crack addicts, schizophrenics, eco-terrorists, people who were distraught because they lost their girlfriend or boyfriend, and they go out and they start lighting fires. Like there's people who just walk around the countryside because they're just angry at the world uh, and they start lighting fires. Out in Oregon, there was someone who was mad at the local community and local government. So he just started walking around and started lighting fires. So arson is a thing. But when we start looking at these fires down in Hawaii, we have to you know, ask ourselves a couple questions. And there were some articles that came out saying, well, look, look, look. There were arsonists back in 2022 on Maui. It's like, okay, well, there was a record number of arsonists in California last year, but there's been a lot of fires in California this year that haven't been arson. So if you look back at these arson charges in 2022 on the island of Maui, and, you know, really, guys, I'm just going to have real talk for a little bit. And Hawaii has a meth problem. And if you don't know a lot about Hawaii or you haven't spent a lot of time there, you don't know people that live there, it's well known. Um, even Max Holloway, if you guys follow the UFC or any sort of like combat sports or mixed martial arts, he was a champion from Hawaii for a very long time, still a number one contender. And he talks about his struggles of growing up on these small islands uh, in Hawaii and saying that fighting kept him out of doing meth. And it's just a massive problem down there. And so if you look at these arson charges from back in 2022, it was back in May and they arrested two people, but three people were involved and uh, they were charged in connection with a series of suspicious brush fires that happened on Maui. Okay. 
They started six fires in a 90-minute window, and they were caught because they were found buying a gas can and a bunch of lighter and starter fluid and were driving around the island lighting fires. That's just the way it was. That's what they were doing. Two people were charged with arson. Uh, One individual let go. And people are taking this story and saying, hey, uh, look, there's arsonists down on Maui, so this must be an arson fire. Right off the top, we don't know the official cause of this fire, so we can't say, hey, it it was uh, arsonists or it wasn't. The reports that we can analyze is that at least three fires started in that area around the same time. Now, that being known, I've seen a tremendous amount of footage of downed power lines and transformers on the ground in multiple different areas on Maui and in the surrounding area. Then you add in the 80-mile-an-hour winds and the reports that have now come out saying that the energy companies, the utility companies, allegedly didn't de-energize the power lines when this hurricane came through. And we'll get into the lawsuits that have already come up and, you know, the litigious nature of class action that sprung up very, very quickly and how that's going to affect the insurance down on Hawaii. Like, there's a lot going on with this incident. So there's a lot of footage um, showing down power lines, transformers on the ground, and then three different starts around the same area and reports that these power lines weren't de-energized. Then you look at the fuel types in the area and the fuel types in Maui and, you know, a downed power line. Could it start these wildfires in these areas with the fuel types that are around there? The San Francisco Chronicle put out an article talking about these fuel types and the invasive grasses and the different invasive species that have grown around these communities in farms that have been abandoned that were used to farm pineapple and and other things. That article says, the grasses which grow faster after rainy winters create fuel for fires and are the biggest factor in turning Hawaii from a place where wildfires are uncommon to one in which they are increasingly considered a familiar risk. The uptick in fires, they say, is largely driven by a major shift in land use on the islands, specifically the abandonment of tens of thousands of acres of pineapple and sugarcane fields that have opened the doors to highly combustible non-native grasses. Unlike California and other mainland states in the West, Hawaii has not had a lot of wildfires historically, and its ecosystem evolved without it. Now, that being said, Hawaii doesn't not have wildfires. You will see wildfires down in Hawaii almost every year. They just don't get large. They're not very intense, and they're not very publicized because usually they go completely unnoticed. And we wrote a Substack article this week about that. The fires that go unnoticed, the fires that no one hears about, they still occur, and uh, you just don't get that media splash with all of these fires that are happening. And the article we wrote up on Substack, it's the hotshotwakeup.substack.com, was talking about these fires that were taking place in the Arctic. And literally, in the Arctic, these these fires took off, and uh, the people who were up there trying to put them out, and it's just not very publicized. And at the same time, you know, if it was publicized, people would say, oh my God, look, it, there's, a, there's a wildfire in the Arctic. It's all, it, all hell's breaking loose and this is Armageddon, the end of the world. 
when in reality a lightning bolt struck some tundra that was a little bit dry in their summer season and you now have a tundra fire that you have to deal with. But no one talks about those fires because they're not exciting. They don't get the clicks. And uh, I just wanted to highlight that in an article this week. Now, continuing about the grasses on Hawaii and these non-native species, it says since the 1990s, the number of fires has been increasing slightly along the growth of these invasive grasses, such as guinea grass, the shrubs, that once were on these sprawling plantations. The University of Hawaii's Ecosystem Extension Program cites a more than threefold increase in burned acreage in recent decades, compared with the last century's average. You pull agriculture off the land, and it fills up with burnable fuels, and no one is doing anything about it. So that's the viewpoint from what are the fuel types down there? What are they dealing with around these communities, and how receptive are those fuels to new starts whether it is arson or a lightning strike or utility poles coming down and starting fires and they have these abandoned farms around these communities that used to be tended to and taken care of but at this point in time they're abandoned and you have these thick non-native grasses that grow and you just have this long stretch of fuel that's running across your island and and has more opportunity for these starts to happen. And then you add in the 80 mile an hour winds that happened and it's off to the races. Now I'm going to address that piece of it right now where people are like, well if a hurricane came through, how come there wasn't any rain? This was all this was all geoengineered weather modification and it wasn't a real hurricane, and they just sent winds down there uh, using harp systems, which are based out of Alaska. That is a real thing, uh, if you don't know about that. And it's this experimental, basically, microwave array in Alaska that was put up to do experimentation with our ionosphere, in which they discovered uh, they could make weather phenomena happen. Now... Why wasn't there any raid with the hurricane in Maui? Well, what happened is you had two storm systems pushing off of the islands. And the rain did come, but it rained out in the ocean. It didn't rain on the islands. And what happens when you have storm systems converge or a storm system pushing through, you have things called outflow winds. And that is when these two separate pressure systems combine. The winds in those systems start to mix And you get things called outflows and you get things called downbursts. And what that is, is these pressure releases of these weather systems that come down and you get increasingly strong winds and you can get outflows quite a ways out from the actual rain or the actual storm system. And in this case, which was riding along the outside of the islands, you see this all around the United States as well. You go to a fire in Idaho, Montana, anywhere that that there's mountains or terrain that can affect these winds, and you have a thunderstorm push over, but it's not over the top of you. It's over the top of the adjacent mountain or the adjacent ridge, and all of the radios will light up on the wildfire, and they will say, hey, there's a storm system pushing through, heads up on outflow winds, and you can be well over a mile plus away 
and you're looking at this storm system very far away, and you can just see the tops of the trees start to move and push towards you. And it's these downbursts and outflow winds that are pushing across the landscape, releasing the pressure that is built up into these systems with these winds, and you get an inferno. They can cause all sorts of problems if there's fire on the ground because they are unpredictable and erratic winds that will push around your fire in ways that uh, will catch you off guard and, you know, surprise you. Now, to the point of people who are like, this is weather modification terrorism. If you read my Substack and you listen to the podcast, I have been hammering uh, weather modification for years and talking about the different systems that they use. You know, just in the last year in the United States, cloud seeding to produce precipitation has increased substantially, especially with ground-based systems that they put on top of mountains and they spray silver iodide into the air, which then attaches itself to dust and water molecules, and then you can pull more rain out of systems that are passing by. This is a very real and functioning technology, but this is used to produce rain, not to produce winds. Then you have solar engineering, where you take aluminum particles and other things and you shoot it up into the sky, and it's supposed to reflect the sunlight back into outer space, where you can then cool the earth and hopefully reduce global temperatures through blocking the sun. And again, this is beyond the experimentation phase. There's funding and governments for it, both in the United States and Europe. And this is a very real-world thing that has been reproduced. They usually do it with blimps. They put blimps up into the air, then they shoot this stuff off and blanket above these regions to try to blot out the sun to reduce temperatures. The HARP system in Alaska, if you dive deep into that, you'll get an array of things, no pun intended, you'll get an array of things <laughs> that uh, people will say this system can and cannot do. It can definitely excite the ionosphere and create northern lights. Like They have proven that. You can create northern lights using this system by shooting it and energizing our ionosphere. Then you read some of the studies and they're like, yeah, we can we can make storm systems and other sorts of things. And then you get into the weeds of it all that we're, there isn't really any proof that this has happened. But there's scientists who are like, you could probably start an earthquake with these things um, and other things like that. But there's no evidence that this is the case down in Hawaii. All the evidence points towards high winds pushing power poles over. Or maybe, maybe arson, but there's no evidence currently of that. And then these fires starting and then being pushed by these hurricane force winds. Then you move on to all the structures that were lost. 1,700 structures as of right now have been said to be completely destroyed. And there's people online being like, how could you destroy this many homes without shooting lasers down from outer space? And I want to make it clear, like, I'm not opposed to, you know, conspiracy theories and whatever. I've said it often that, you know, I find those things kind of fun and entertaining and they're fun to talk about over dinner. And some are real. Like you would be you would be naive to think that there was no conspiracy on planet Earth. Conspiracy is two or more people, organizations coming together to make a plan in secret and, and do something that is maybe nefarious. 
you'd be naive to think that there isn't conspiracy on planet Earth. But one hour after a fire starts, you start seeing this stuff and it's being pushed hard and it's being pushed by accounts that are shady and, you know, maybe just like started a day ago or something like that. And they say, well, 1,700 structures, how did that all burn down? You you had to have, you know, something something else than just fire. And the answer to that is no. That's not how it works. Like, there's plenty of... Look at the Chicago fire that took place. You burned all of Chicago down back in the day. Why? How did that happen? Well, the famous story is that a cow kicked over a lantern. It landed in some hay. It started a barn on fire. And then there was abnormal winds that day. And this windstorm pushed the fire through the the city. There's plenty of combustible materials inside of homes, and homes themselves are fuel. They teach you this when you are a wildland firefighter, that trees and homes, you should treat them the same in wildland fire because they're both fuel. And they say this because they don't want you to get hung up on trying to save a home in the woods with wildfire around you. Don't get attached to the home because it's just fuel and like you wouldn't go and try to save one tree from a fire all around it. And yes, obviously we do what we can to save communities and homes, but we're talking last minute decisions here as fires rolling over the top of you. Don't, don't get committed to a home that will be lost. And then the joke on the fire line is homes grow back faster than trees. And that's this last part I want to talk about of what's going down in Hawaii. So the lawsuits have started and they are suing the power companies. It's a class action lawsuit. We're going to run through this lawsuit and what they are claiming is the cause of this fire and who is responsible and maybe the repercussions of that. And we have seen this happen in multiple states now. In California, it's been happening for a while with PG&E up in Oregon. There's Pivotal lawsuits that are continuing for multiple fires up there against their utility companies and other places as well. And we've been able to see what the aftermath of that process is. And now the beginning of this has started down in Hawaii. And we can look out. We don't need a crystal ball, people. We can just look out at what has happened in California, what is happening in Oregon, and kind of predict where Hawaii is going with this as well. Now, this lawsuit, it was filed on August 12th. So yesterday, they moved very quick to do this. And it says, Today, the Honolulu and Los Angeles-based firms Lipsmith LLP, together with Foley, Bezik, Bill, and Curtis, filed class action lawsuits against Maui Electric Company, Hawaiian Electric Company, Hawaii Electric Light Company, and their parent company, Hawaiian Electric Industries, on behalf of the victims and survivors of the Lahaina Fire. The Lahaina Fire started on August 8th, and at least to this count, 93 people have died. Many remain missing. The officials fear the death toll will rise in the coming days. Sadly, yes, they're still tr- they're still trying to get through the town and the houses and see what's what. The Lahaina fire also destroyed and damaged thousands of structures, which include homes, businesses, and historic and cultural sites. The disaster also displaced thousands of people from their homes, schools, and places of work. The class action lawsuit alleges that downed power lines, 
that these power companies owned and operated caused the fire. The utilities also failed to de-energize the power lines prior to the fire, despite warnings days before that high winds from Hurricane Dora would create high fire danger. On the day of the fire, the National Weather Service issued high wind warnings and red flag warnings. Our team is both humbled and honored that the Hawaii clients have entrusted us to find a meaningful way forward from this extraordinarily tragic event, said Graham Lipsmith. We will devote every resource required to help our clients navigate through this catastrophe. So multiple law firms have come out and said, we're going to sue the power companies. And one of these law firms is from California, where there is a lot of precedent and cases to look back on to see how you proceed with these things. But then we can look into what comes next. And what comes next is, if we look at history is the power companies will most likely file for bankruptcy, especially with this being the most deadly and devastating fire in at least 100 years in the United States. You can expect, we're talking massive sums of money here, billions and billions of dollars. And the companies will probably end up either threatening to file for bankruptcy or filing for bankruptcy. Then it moves on to getting state support to maintain those power companies and keeping them from going under because when they go under, you don't have any power left in your community. Like this is the double-edged sword with this kind of thing. And then you have these insurance companies who are going to take a hit and they're going to say, hey, we're just not even going to insure these areas anymore, which is what has happened in California and Oregon. So now you have a community that's been devastated by wildfire with insurance companies now saying, hey, we are not going to insure anything in this community anymore because it's too much of a risk for us. So good luck. Like, good luck with it because we're just not even going to do business down here anymore. This is the pattern of what happens when you sue power companies for wildfire disasters. I'm not saying don't sue them or sue them or it's right or it's wrong. I'm just saying this is the blueprint. This is the puzzle when you put the pieces together. And this is the outcome that you get from these things. Now, the last thing I'm going to cover about the Hawaii fires is folks saying this is eco-terrorism and being used by rich people to have a land grab in that island community and in that area. Now, it does not surprise me that this narrative has arisen. And again, if you look at Hawaii's history, uh, it's very contentious and there's a lot of hate and anger down there on the island community for how um, that island evolved from a sovereign nation, a monarchy, and was umbrellaed into the United States of America. And there was a lot of shady stuff that happened. There was a lot of, you know, corporations that went down there. And ultimately, till today, you have a lot of very upset, angry people with how everything went down historically. And I can't blame them for that. Like, if I was a native islander and that was my history and and I still, you know, had my culture and my beliefs of what I thought my community and island should be, I would be incredibly angry as well. Like, I, how could you not be? Um, and that still is down there today. That still exists today. And so there's these narratives of, well, uh, you know, they burn these places up 
to destroy them. And then, you know, the insurance companies pull out and you can't afford to live there anymore. Then all the poor people have to leave. And then the rich people can come in and land grab. Now, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that was the cause of these fires, that someone was running around starting these fires, thinking in their mind that the long game outcome of this, I can steal all of this land. I'm not going to make that reach yet, especially without uh, official cause of these fires coming out. And I don't think we're going to hear an official cause for a while, people. Like, I really don't. But that being said, could that be an outcome of all of this? And the simple answer is yes, that could easily be an outcome of all of this. It's what has been expressed in the halls of Congress, in sworn testimony about what is happening in California and Oregon and other places. When these insurance companies pull out and they say, we're not going to insure your property anymore, you can't afford to live there, and so you sell it. And the only people who can buy uninsured property are people with cash. People with cash happen to be wealthy people. And then the community slowly morphs. These rural, nice communities slowly morph into less and less middle-class, low-income folks who are just living in small towns and trying to get by to wealthier people coming in and buying up all the land for pennies on the dollar with cash, and they can afford to build and live there, not being insured by the insurance companies or getting a sweet deal with insurance companies simply because of the amount of wealth that they have. This could be an outcome, but I'm not going to take the reach and say, this is the reason for the fire, and if someone did start these fires, you know, that's, that's the cause of it all. You know, in closing on this topic, it's been a slow fire season. One of the slowest in a long time. Canada obviously is an outlier currently around the planet. Like even Europe is slower than it has been. Greece is slower. Even with the the big fires that happened in Greece, you know, there's not as many. And in the United States specifically, it's one of the slowest fire seasons in a very, very long time. The media hasn't had a lot of opportunity to report on big devastating fires that are happening in California or big devastating fires in, you know, the Southwest in New Mexico like they had last year with Calf Canyon and Hermit's Peak. And they've really been chomping at the bit for finding disasters to report on. And you look at this, the, the spectrum of the people in the media and you have one, people on one side saying that the only reason these fires happened was because humans are destroying the planet. And then you go on the other side and you know the, the extreme other side is there's satellite laser systems starting fires in Hawaii. And then you tone it down a little bit and they're like, there's arsonists running around starting all these fires. And it's been so slow of a fire season, a lot of people are pouncing on this. And yes, it is a massive tragedy. It's the the most devastating fire in United States history, likely, but as of right now in the last hundred years for sure. So there's a lot of people running around trying to use this disaster for a talking point. And I understand why they do it, and I'm not going to like harp on anybody about it, But you just have to look at all of the things that are going on and what are the obvious potential causes of this 
and kind of pick through all of these arguments of of just I'm just gonna say it, just a bunch of losers on the internet. They are like just a bunch of losers on the internet attacking people, um, posting fake imagery and fake videos. And making claims for their talking points and saying, hey, the earth is dying, it's all your fault. Or there's there's a grand conspiracy using satellite system arrays to start wildfires. And in the last 30 minutes, I've gone through these points to say, hey, I don't, I'm not saying all of you are wrong or that these systems don't exist or that, you know, the climate is changing. But you also have to look at the fuel types on this island are changing. There was a massive storm system that came through with outflow winds. There is a tremendous amount of footage showing downed power lines and transformers on the ground with fires around. I've posted these on the social media and talked about it on the Substack. And in my opinion, it's going to take a while for the cause of these fires to come out. If you look at the Marshall Fire that devastated Colorado... It took over a year to find out what the cause of those fires was. And what it comes down to is they they think it's one of two things, and that's a power pole shorted out and started some fire and some dry grass, or there was a pile burn, you know, and maybe it's an and or. They, they think it's possible that both of these things happened. There was a pile burn that smoldered for a long time on some private property, and that took off and then they're thinking maybe these two fires combined and became this mega fire in Colorado and this is my last point okay (laughs) like bear with me just bear with me for this last point for the people who are claiming that these there's you know super powerful direct energy weapon laser systems uh, destroying and causing fires all around the United States, including California, Alaska, Hawaii. They're saying it happens everywhere. Why don't we see these systems being used in war? Why aren't we seeing, you know, Russian ranks being destroyed by direct energy weapons from outer space uh, over in the Ukraine war? How come we didn't see it in Iraq and Afghanistan? How come we didn't see it in Libya or Syria or Yemen? How come we're not seeing enemy vessels out in the ocean being sunk by direct energy weapons? Are you telling me that they have these systems available to themselves, but they're just using it to start wildfires? Now think about that. They're just using them to start wildfires. For what reason? For the climate agenda is what people claim. And, uh... I just don't like why would you why would you have this super powerful high tech weapon system and just use it to start fires and burn up cars and things like that again I know it's admitted that there are governments especially China Russia and the United States that say that they have the ability of high powered laser systems and they can use them to shoot down satellites but they are ground based laser systems And they admit that, hey, we can do this for military use. My question is, if we're doing it to start a fire in Hawaii or a fire in the wilderness outside Happy Camp, California, why aren't we seeing these systems being used in warfare? You know? And every time I ask these folks, like, hey, show me evidence of this. Like, please do. 
show me evidence of this happening. They always send me some AI generated or some fake photo, and it's just, it's diluting the waters. It's causing confusion. And again, you have to be aware, like a lot of this stuff are losers in basements and people who have way too much time on their hands. And a lot of it's bots, multiple accounts. And you see this all over. You see this happen all over the place. So that's kind of the update of what's happening in Hawaii. As it progresses further, I'll try to keep people updated. Obviously, we probably won't have all the details for a while. When things like this happen, it can take up to a year to get everything hashed out and and see what's what and figure out what actually happened, the timelines, so on and so forth. Up next, we'll talk about uh, all the other fires happening around the United States. What's going on there? The Pacific Northwest actually bumped up to a preparedness level four yesterday. So there's plenty to talk about there. They have a lot of hot, dry weather pushing through as we get into the depths of August, the height of summer. And those systems are going to push through Idaho, Montana, northern Utah, and other places as well. But I'd like to take this time to thank all the paid Substack subscribers. Thank you very much. Everything I do is 100% community supported through that Substack. It's the hotshotwakeup.substack.com. You get access to all the article archives. I put out another podcast midweek just on Substack for those paid subscribers. Some of the articles are paid only. The workouts, the firefighter donations that we give out, and the giveaways as well. Everything is 100% supported through this community, and I really, really appreciate that. If you would like to support the Hotshot Wake Up and everything that I do, just go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com, click on that subscribe button, and again, thank you to the small community of people out there that is continuing to support what I do. I do have a massive, massive following uh, of individuals who are free subscribers, or just kind of follow along and read. And I can see the numbers of who reads the articles. And, you know, these days it's up to, in a day, I'll have, you know, 15,000, 8,000, 12,000 people read an article. And that's even, that's more than I even have free subscribers. So there's people who continue to come to the Substack who don't even have a free subscription. Um, but I appreciate you liking and sharing it. But if you want to continue supporting and, and make sure that these things continue to come out with these updates... Just go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com and uh, click on subscribe to support everything that I do. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. If we look around the United States and what's been happening in the wildfire world and the wildfire activity, in a lot of the regions around the nation, there's been a slight lull. And that's because these monsoons have started to push in. Utah got some rain. New Mexico, Arizona saw some precipitation, as did Montana, with a little bit of cooler temperatures. But that is about to change in this next week. Currently, nationally, we're at a preparedness level three I'm curious if we will see a preparedness level four or higher as we push through August. Maybe with the Pacific Northwest and the weather that's expected in that area, 
in the coming week. It's it's definitely primed and ready for large wildfire growth, especially southern Idaho as well. There are still new starts in the Devil's Canyon area of Idaho. They had like seven new lightning starts in the last 24 hours. A bunch of jumpers from Grangeville jumped those. So the new starts are still out there. But as is typical in August, they're not getting to these very large, massive sizes that you've been seeing in the last few years. But there still is activity around the nation. In the last 24 hours, there were 99 new fires. I believe it was six new large fires, five in Texas and one in Oregon. Texas has been very, very busy. They've had red flags for like four or five days straight now. Temperatures in 109, 111. And they, if there's a start in Texas, it's taken off at this point in time. There's 41 uncontained large fires currently in the nation with a total of 17 teams committed to wildfires around the country. It's 10 type twos, one type one team, and these new conglomerates that we're calling complex IMTs, there's five of those. If you don't know what a complex incident management team is compared to a type one or type two, it's basically a combination of those And they're experimenting with these new teams to see if they can expand and contract the size of incidents within that team without ordering a whole new team in to make that transition. There's some controversy internally in the wildfire world about that. We've talked about it again on the Substack where people are concerned about quals. Are type 2 teams going to get called less? How is this going to happen? Blah, 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 blah. And we've covered that before, if you, if you want to hear about that. Nationally, there are 58 fires being managed for resource benefit or strategy other than full suppression, which, again, compared to last year at this time, that number is significantly down. There was like 90-plus this time last year of how many fires were being managed. A lot of them were up in Montana. The Bitterroot had a lot of managed fires last year and other places. Speaking of the Bitterroot, we'll start in the Northern Rockies. They're at a preparedness level three. They had 21 new fires. They have 10 uncontained large fires and a couple teams out there. The most prominent ones, and again, in Montana and parts of Idaho, they've been seeing some favorable weather for a little bit to try to get some containment on these fires that have been you know, fairly prominent, that being the Big Knife Fire in the Flathead area, the Neoronda Fire, which was in the Flathead area. The Colt Fire outside of Missoula near Sealy Lake, the Midnight Fire, and in Idaho, the Consulus, the Buckskin Fire, and and others. Now, the Ridge Creek Fire up in Idaho on the Panhandle, it's nearing 2,500 acres, uh, already 16% contained. There's 350 people on it at $4.5 million. Now, don't confuse that with the Ridge Fire. That's in the Flathead Agency in Montana. That's 3,200 acres, 5% contained. It did have a little bit of growth yesterday, almost 200 acres in growth yesterday. And that has cost $4.4 million at this point in time. They have 385 people on that fire. The Big Knife Fire, which we've talked about before, that's at 5,000 acres. It's 4,952 acres, but we could round it up to five. They have 7% containment on that fire, 284 people, and a hefty price tag of $7 million at this point in time. The Neoronda fire, which is the larger one, it was like grass for a large extent before it got up into some other, you know, timbered fuel types. But 
it was 20,365 acres, uh, and that thing ripped. Plenty of uh, footage and, and, and pictures that I shared on the social media with that. But they basically have that thing wrapped up. It's at 70% contained. The Mill Pocket Fire, 2,100 acres, 89% contained. And both of those fires, $6.3 million, $1.6 million. And combined, they have about 400 people on those fires. And then if you go down the list, it just gets more and more containment as you go. The most expensive is this Colt fire that was outside of Sealy Lake, which is near Missoula, Montana. They had a ton of hotshot crews come in on that, did some burning. They got some favorable weather come through. Uh, the history of this fire is very, very interesting. Just the, the politics that went in with it when it comes to feds and state resources trying to work together. But again, we've talked about that before on the Substack. Um, if you want to check that out, hotshotwakeup.substack.com. But this fire has cost a tremendous amount of money. It's 7,200 acres. They have over 600 people on it right now. There's hotshot crews that did full rolls there. It has a current cost of $22 million for this 7,000-acre fire. But they have the containment up to 45%, which in the fire world, if your fire is 45% contained and you've had favorable weather, that thing is it's starting to wrap up. There's still a lot of work left to be done. On a fire like that, you have suppression, repair, and rehab work where you have to rehab all these highways that these crews have created through the wilderness and through the forest, and either you have heavier machinery do it or it's just done by good old-fashioned labor. But the Colt Fire, you can expect that to be wrapping up and all these crews that are on it to either be sent home or redirected maybe to Idaho where all these new fires started. I think Idaho will be the place to watch this upcoming week. Very, very warm weather pushing through, and they haven't had a shortage of starts compared to a lot of other places. The Northwest area, the Pacific Northwest, they're at a preparedness level four. Again, that bumped up yesterday. Nine new fires. An interesting one is this lookout fire that's near Mackenzie Bridge, Oregon. It's heavy timber. There's some chaparral and brush as well. It already went to a type two incident management team. It's Northwest Team 6. That's managing that fire. That's on the Willamette National Forest. There's this Wiley fire on the Willamette National Forest as well. And then the fires we've heard about for a while now being the Sourdough, the Bedrock, and others. There's this fun little fire out in Oregon on the Umpqua National Forest called the Ben Harrison Fire. It looks like, it just looks like a nice fun fire to be on. There's only 80 people on it. So if you're one of those 80 people, maybe I'm wrong, but from the the footage I've seen, the landscape, and just where it is, it looks like it could probably be kind of a fun little fire to be on. The lookout fire in the Willamette National Forest is 215 acres. It did grow by 85 acres yesterday. It's already at $1.3 million and 235 people on it. The Wiley Fire, again, it's not a huge fire, 220 acres, but they have 300 people on that fire, so well over one person per acre. The sourdough fire burning in the North Cascades of Washington State, this is another Type 2 fire in the Pacific Northwest. The acreage really hasn't changed that much in at least like almost a week now. If you look out, it's very interesting. The estimated containment of the sourdough fire is pushed all the way back to October 1st, so they're not expecting this thing to be put out anytime soon. There's 420 people on it, 
and it's cost $6.1 million at this point in time. It's a National Park Service fire. And again, they've pushed the dates out on these containments to October already. And this is the time of year where it's very interesting to start looking at those containment dates. Because when you put something up like, hey, it's going to be, it won't be contained until October 31st, which there's a fire that already has that estimated containment. It's the airplane fire in Washington. And they have an estimated containment of October 31st. And basically what that is telling the public is it's we're just going to let this thing skunk around and do its thing until the snow flies. And this is the time of year where you start seeing management teams decide, hey, do we wait for the snow or not? And I think that's very important to know and say because there are people who don't know a lot about wildfire but are very prominent in the media who will take things like this and say, oh my gosh, these fires are going to burn until the snow falls. It's horrible. Look at this is a disaster. It's Armageddon. When the truth is, is this happens all the time and has been happening forever. It's just hard to reach very remote places with a fire that's not threatening anything. And uh, you let nature take its course. And yes, that's that's how it works a lot of the time is, is you need to wait for some snowfall to come in. Otherwise, you commit a lot of people to a very dangerous area and you have to have this cost-benefit tabulation to say, well, we could just let this thing skunk around and let the snow put it out, or we could endanger 200 people. And that decision becomes very easy when in, when you look at the locations of some of these fires. Like I said earlier, the Pacific Northwest is expecting very hot, dry weather this next week, so keep an eye on that as well. The Southwest decreased its preparedness level to a PL3. They had nine new fires. Again, they've had some more favorable weather pushed through this Black Feather Fire, it's the Type 1 fire down there. Southwest Team 2 is on that outside of Cuba, New Mexico. That thing ripped for a while, but it's calmed down. The Cane Fire, which is a Type 2 fire on the Kaibab, which is very interesting because the President of the United States was visiting that area earlier this week. He kind of did a tour down in the Southwest when the Cerro Pelado investigation concluded and they're like hey it was a forest service pile burn that escaped and again devastated a community so they sent the president down there to kind of make nice and be like hey we're going to pay for all of this don't worry everything will be taken care of which if if calf canyon hermit's peak is anything to use an example of when it comes to governments paying off communities that have been destroyed by wildfire it's going to take a very long time, and uh, there's going to be all sorts of problems and hiccups along the way. But the Black Feather Fire, 2,200 acres, 517 people, $3.9 million. The Cane Fire, 2,900 acres, 255 people, $2.5 million. And then the other fires that are kind of wrapping up, the American Mesa is now 71% contained. They have 260 people at $2.7 million. The Brady Fire in Arizona, they have more people than acres on that fire. It's 264 acres. They have 289 people with a cost of $2.1 million. And then again, you go down the list in the Southwest and the containment just keeps increasing and a lot of these fires are getting wrapped up down there. The Great Basin, which is Nevada, Southern Idaho, and Utah, they're at a PL3. They did have some moisture come through. The big fires out there, are this Elkhorn Fire in the Payette, 
they've hammered out a lot of work on that. It's already 40% contained, like props for getting this monster 40% contained at this point in time. It's it's 26,000 acres, and obviously they were able to burn or find natural barriers to kind of corral this thing in and call it 40% contained. I honestly didn't think they were going to have this amount of containment this quickly, so mad props to uh, Great Basin Team 2. That is the critical incident management team managing that fire outside of Warren, Idaho. They have 247 people in a cost of $6.6 million. The Thompson Ridge Fire in Beaver, Utah, 7,200 acres. They received anywhere between a tenth of an inch to a quarter inch of rain on that fire. And they probably will start wrapping that fire up and adding containment very, very quickly. If you look at Alaska, they had some favorable weather as well. Hotshot crews are still headed that direction. Sierra Hotshots just landed I believe it was last night or this morning. They're at a PL3, only one fire in the last 24 hours, and they're starting to build containment on the fires that were threatening communities and and things like that. The one to look at is the Pogo Mine Fire at 47,100 acres, only 1% contained, 127 people on it for almost a 50,000-acre fire, $1.3 million, and that's a prime example of Alaska having to fight fire differently than the rest of the United States. The Anderson Complex is starting to get a grasp on that, 45% contained at 51,000 acres, $7.3 million. And the Lost Horse Creek Fire at nearly 10,000 acres, but again, they're starting to get containment on that at 12% contained. And then there's just a bunch of fires in Alaska that are unstaffed and are burning freely because they're not threatening anything and they're in the middle of nowhere. So you just let these things burn. Lastly, the Southern area PL3. And a lot of this stuff is just going to be down in Texas. They had the Campbell fire, 4,000 acres, but they're getting a grasp on that. The Santa Rosa Creek fire, 1400 acres. Again, they're getting containment on that, but just a spattering of fires down there. They've had red flags for a very long time. And down in Texas, it's kind of an engine show and a bulldozer show. Heavy equipment and engines running around, pushing dozer line and, and something that you call pump and roll, which you have a firefighter at the end of a hose while the engine is driving. And uh, you try to put these things out as fast as you can. Texas has been very, very busy. Let's not forget about Colorado. Again, they've had some fires, but they are starting to get some containment on these things. The Bear Creek Fire in San Juan National Forest, 400 acres. Quartz Ridge, also in the San Juan, that's pushing 1,400 acres. No containment on that. And if you look at the estimated containment, it's pushed out to October 31st. So what do we know about that? We know that they're probably going to just let it skunk around until the snow flies. And a couple other in Colorado, but they're fires that are gaining containment as the days go on. That's the operational update. Again, there is a weather system pushing through the western United States, into the basin, and into the mountain states, the northern Rockies. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. And I think with these weather systems that have been pushing through that were cooler and wetter, we're going to see another burst of some significant wildfire in the next couple of weeks with the warming, drying trend that's coming and taking place. 
Again, thank you to all the paid Substack subscribers. If you want to participate and support what I do for the Hotshot Wake Up, just go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com and click on that subscribe button. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. Lastly on the show, we're going to talk about the legislation going through to pay firefighters what they're deserved and kind of the push that's happening out of Montana. Montana Senate race is going to be very contentious and you have kind of this focus on wildland fire from the candidates who are running this next election in Montana. So I'm not surprised to see this article come out of Helena by Jonathan Abrian talking about this legislation being pushed by these senators and Senate candidates in Montana. But just a quick update before we go for the day on what's happening there. It says, two years ago, Congress approved temporary pay boosts for federal wildland firefighters. Now those are expected to expire at the end of September, something that we've been covering at the Hotshot Wake Up for a very long time, well over a year. And as the article says, they're calling this the fiscal pay cliff. It says from Senator John Tester of Montana, quote, I hope fire season is over with by the end of September, but chances are it won't be. And we need these folks. We need them out there fighting our fires. These men and women spend every fire season on the front lines protecting our communities and our families. And that quote was from Republican Senator Steve Daines. I believe it's important that their pay reflects this. In 2021, Congress approved $600 million for these temporary pay increases. And out of that $600 million, $381 million in supplemental pay has been paid out since the end of June. The temporary increases boosted firefighters' pay from $20,000 or 50% of their previous base salary. However, again, that's expected to run out September 30th. Both Senator Daines and Tester, or excuse me, Representative Daines and Senator Tester are both co-sponsors of the Wildland Firefighter Paycheck Protection Act which would provide permanent increases in firefighters' base pay, and the bill has bipartisan support, as does a similar bill introduced in the House this week. Dane said that there could be clear consequences if Congress fails to act soon, and firefighter salaries will drop to where they were before. Quote, several Montana wildland firefighters have told me that they fear without making the pay increase permanent, up to 50% of the federal wildland firefighters will quit, he said. The time to make this pay raise permanent is now. But yeah, the time to make this pay raise permanent was months ago. Honestly, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, this should have been done by now. Senator Tester says he's optimistic a fix can get through before the deadline, possibly added to another key bill. Okay, so (laughs) there you go. They're going to attach this thing to other legislation. We all know how that goes. Fantastic. He said the importance of wildland firefighters is now getting through the lawmakers and all other parts of the country. Quote, a month and a half ago, Washington, D.C., the whole East Coast, they were covered with smoke from the Canadian fire, said Tester. That may have been the best thing that could have ever happened because that's what we live with here in Montana. Every August, we end up with smoky weather more times than not. And I think it brought more of an awareness that wasn't there before. And I think that it will help this bill. 
The Senate is set to be back in session after Labor Day, and the House will return a week later. This gives lawmakers under a month to advance the bill before the end of the fiscal year. So they're still pushing it. It's still in the media. They're still talking about it. They're trying to get it done when the next session starts, but the, everybody's on vacation right now in Washington, D.C., and we'll see if they finally get this thing pushed through. Typical to government and Washington, D.C., this thing is coming down to the wire, and it'll probably be passed last minute. Or if it doesn't pass, we won't know until the last minute. The good news is it's still in the headlines. People are still talking about it and they're trying to get something pushed through. So we'll see. We, we have to wait until Congress gets back in session. Probably not a lot of updates until then, but that's the quick, simple update on what's happening with all of that there. Again, thank you to all the paid Substack subscribers. Supports everything that I do. If you aren't a paid Substack subscriber, I know a lot of you aren't, and, and you still read and listen to the podcasts and articles now, I would just ask that you like and share those articles uh, to show support as well. But if you'd like to participate in keeping what I do going, just go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com and click on that subscribe button to support. On that note, reach out to someone you haven't talked to in a while, check in on your homies, get outside, exercise, stretch, hydrate, eat those quality calories because those are the ones that count, get the rest you need because that's what you need to recover. But as always, when you get up, you got to get it done. Yeah.